If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, uh, verse 19 and 20. And then put a, a finger over in Luke chapter 7, because we're going to jump over to Luke chapter 7 this evening as well. Long day? How about this heat, huh? It's been hot out there. Let's pray and here to meet with the Lord, here to meet in his word. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the refreshment that comes in singing to you, giving you praise, giving you gratitude. And Jesus, there's no one like you. We pray tonight as we explore the doubts that we have and the difficulties of life that you would speak to our hearts and that you would encourage us, that you'd move us from that place of doubt to that place of faith. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 19 and 20 of Luke chapter 3. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time looking at doubts that arise while we're in prison. We'll see some doubts arose for John the Baptist as he did not expect to be placed in a prison. I want to quickly look at verse 19 uh, as well. Sometimes when you're teaching the scriptures, things kind of dawn on you after you're done. Sometimes I get home on Sunday afternoon and I'm like, oh wow, there's a lot of weight there. And this concept that John the Baptist, he rebuked Herod. I kind of missed that this weekend when I was, was teaching. It's like, man, he took a bold stance against Herod. He chooses to rebuke Herod and Herod is a Roman governing official. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. He's not an Israelite. You know, he's, he's a Roman, but yet John the Baptist is moved by the Lord in wanting to see Herod come to a place of repentance, of seeing Herod get right with the Lord. So he calls him out on his sexual sin with Herodias, who's his brother's wife. And what happens then from there is he goes into all the evils that Herod was doing, and it resulted in John the Baptist being thrown in prison. I've been doing a little bit of research on Title IX, and bear with me. I think you'll see uh, the correlation that, that's taking place. But right now in our country, there are laws that are looking to be put in place that are very much against the teachings of, of Scripture. And I want you to see where I get this, because here in verse 19, what is John the Baptist addressing? He's addressing sexual sin. And when we look at Title IX, and I really wasn't aware of this till this week, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but Title IX is being revised. They're attempting to revise uh, Title IX. And if it gets revised, it's totally going to change the laws when it comes to sexuality in our country. And these new laws are contrary to a biblical world of sexuality. So just so we're on the same page, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm, 
not a tall, skinny guy that claims to have the authority on sexuality, but I do believe in a God that has the authority on sexuality. So, so God designed us as sexual beings, and in Genesis, it says that God created us male and female in his image. In the image of God, we're created male and female, and marriage is God's idea. It's God's institution. He created sex inside of marriage. He's unashamed of his design of marriage. So I want to read to you from a website, and if you desire to go check it out more, you can. It's called childparents.org. So childparents.org, easy to remember, childparents.org. But it gives you an overview of if Title IX does get revised. So it creates a new category of sexual discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The new rules will dramatically expand the scope of Title IX to include discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. They declare that preventing a student from participating in any school activity consists with their gender identity subjects a student to harm on the basis of sex. Also, it'll mark upholding biological reality a form of sexually based harassment. This is where you got to be paying attention. So if Title IX gets revised, if you refer to someone based on their biology instead of their chosen pronoun, that's sexual harassment. This is a federal law. And so if this goes into place in, in schools, if you don't go along with this agenda, all of a sudden you've committed sexual harassment. Uh, that, that's a huge change. Uh, normalizing gender identity ideology hards children's health. Uh, the new regulations will promote gender identity ideology in our schools as a mandated policy, encouraging students to believe that they can be born in the wrong body. So. This will be part of the teaching, and it already is in some public schools, this idea being planted in young kids' heads that, that you can be born in the wrong uh, body. It'll create a head-on collision with parental rights. And I just encourage you to look into this for yourself. I hadn't really looked into it until uh, this week. The new regulations would require K-12 schools to support social transitioning children to a different gender without notice to parents. The involvement of medical professionals or legal documents, these are life-altering decisions that are not, they're not qualified to make. So this whole process of a child transitioning can now take place if Title IX gets changed without even the parents being notified. So, so imagine, you've got your kid in the local public school, decides they want to transition to another gender, the school supports it without even the parents being informed. From a biblical worldview, do your kids belong to the state? I hope you know that that's not true, right? So first of all, who do your kids belong to? The Lord, right? That's a clear biblical teaching, and they're stewarded to us parents. They're not stewarded to the government. So it requires schools to open up privacy facilities based on gender identification. So schools would be required to permit males who identify as females to use privacy facilities set aside for females and vice versa. Could you imagine if that was going on in your middle school when you were growing up, right? So you got biological dudes now in the locker room uh, with biological uh, females. 
It'll jeopardize girls and women's athletics and educational opportunities. With this gender transitioning, now as a biological male, you can then choose to compete in cross country and track as a female. So it's a th threat to religious freedom and free speech in favor of gender and indoctrination. So th this is a this is a big deal if this if this does get altered. Now, if Title IX does get changed and does get amended, God's bigger, right? He's, God is is on the throne. But one of the reasons I mention it tonight is if you want to go make a comment on the federal government's website, you can do that only up to this weekend, September 12th. It, it's the last chance as an American to be able to, to go in and to, to make a comment here. Now, hear me out on this because I think there's a lot to explain on this. What, what's first? Our citizenship in heaven, All right? Citizenship in heaven is what we're all about and what we're focused on and Jesus Christ and him crucified. Do laws change hearts? Nope, laws don't change hearts. Does God call us to be stewards of our earthly citizenship? Yes. So just like we steward finances and we steward our bodies, we also want to steward the fact that God has allowed us to be citizens in the United States of America. And unlike Rome, we get to influence our political leaders. You can go to a website and put comments if you want to. You can choose to vote and to try to vote biblically. What are the biblical issues, a biblical worldview? Try to find candidates that hold to biblical definition of sexuality, to life beginning in the womb. And if believers don't step into that space, then we can't be salt and light. And to go back to the text, is John the Baptist stepped into that space? And the reason he stepped into that space is because he cared about Herod and he cared about the nation of Israel. We want to step into that space because hopefully we care about our leaders. If they don't know Christ, that they would come to know Christ. And also that we would say, okay, Lord, I want to steward this responsibility that you have given to me to be taking stewardship of the citizenship of the United States of America. But here is what is the challenge for the church is it seems like some churches is all it is is politics, right? It's like that becomes the church's message. And I think that's, that's probably the greatest danger in all this stuff is if the church loses the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. But then the other side of it is you have churches that just totally ignore it. And if we totally ignore these things, how are we loving our kids and how are we loving future generations? You know, and there's a famous quote, you know, what happens if good people choose to do nothing, right? Or, or basically what happens when wrong and evil doesn't, doesn't get addressed. And so I'm not looking to go find these things. You know, I'm not a fighter by nature. I don't really enjoy conflict, but I do care about our kids. I care about my kids. I care about your kids. I care about the kids of the community. And it's important for kids to know how God's designed a sexuality. So I just put that out there. If you want to research it more, uh, childparents.org. Uh, if you want to email me, please email Pastor Robert, our assistant pastor, uh, Robert Beach. At, no, feel free to email me if, you, if you'd like. Let's look at verse 20. Also added this 
above all that he shut John up in prison. So what was the result of John the Baptist speaking out on these things? He tried to get silenced, tried to be thrown in prison. And that's where we pick up the rest of the story in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. What things are they reporting to John as he's in prison? All these amazing miracles, specifically just prior in chapter 17, that God raised up the widow's son from the dead. So these amazing miracles are being shared with John. But John's response is very interesting. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Several things to note about doubt. And the first is, number one, doubts are real. Doubts are real. John the Baptist, as he's in prison, he's wondering, Is Jesus the Messiah, or should they look for somebody else? Did he miss it? somehow. Remember all that John saw. We just studied it in chapter 3 over the weekend that John was the one who baptized Christ. Imagine what that would have been like. No, you should be baptizing me. But here Jesus is submitting to the plan of the Father. John the Baptist is able to hear the voice of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He heard it. He saw the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. But yet now, in prison, he's starting to wonder and he's starting to doubt, did I get something wrong here? No doubt he had been shared from his parents the story of the virgin birth. Remember, Mary, the first person that she went to go visit was Elizabeth. God opened the mouth of Zacharias, his dad, because his mouth had been mute when he chose to not believe God's promise to give them a son. He has seen the works of God. Since he's been in prison, he has heard of all of the miracles that Jesus was doing, but yet he has doubt. One of the things that I love about the Bible is God records its characters with warts and all, right? If we were writing the scriptures, we would probably just put down all of the amazing things about the disciples, about the forefathers. But the Bible is brutally honest about the weaknesses of those in Scripture. And it seems like, especially with doubt as believers, we feel a lot of shame if we have doubt. If we're in our John the Baptist moment, we feel in our hearts, I should know better. John the Baptist should, should know better. And there's this shame that comes with doubt. And then if we happen to share this doubt with another believer, they may shame us. They may tell us, hey, you should know better, right? This is what the Bible says. And it's like, I know that, but yet I'm still struggling in this moment. So I just want you to take a deep breath. Doubts are real. John the Baptist has doubts. The Bible records it. John the Baptist is not alone uh, in his doubts. There's several others uh, throughout Scripture that have their doubts. Thomas, doubting the resurrection of Christ. He had to physically touch the risen Savior. 
Elijah, the prophet, stood up in an incredible way to the prophets of Baal, even executing some of these prophets. And then Jezebel sends him a message, I'm going to kill you. And he runs for his life and asks God to, to take his life. He was in that valley of doubt in the midst of that moment. Jeremiah writes in the book of Lamentations that he actually viewed God as a predator. He, he viewed God as, as someone who was coming against him as, as he was, was struggling. So Jeremiah struggled with the doubt. Job struggled with doubt. He never cursed God, but he wrestled with God. Why did you even allow me to be born if you knew that this was going to take place? If you really look at the totality of the Bible, there's lots of recordings where God allows us to look inside the windows of souls to see doubt. Number two, and I know this is a simple point, but doubts need to be shared. Doubts need to be shared. John had the courage to send his message to Jesus through the disciples saying, are you the one or should we look for another? That takes guts, doesn't it? I'm sure John the Baptist wrestled with this for a while while he was in prison. Like, I'm supposed to be the guy. I'm supposed to be the forerunner. I got the camel skin clothes. I eat grasshoppers. I'm the voice in the wilderness. Like, I'm bold. I've been telling everybody that they need to, to repent. Am I really going to ask this question? But this question was eating at him. And please hear this. Our doubts need to be shared with the Lord. With the Lord. And it's okay. Sometimes it's profitable to process these doubts with, with one another, especially those that you, you trust. But are we going to the Lord with our doubts and our struggles as we're in the midst of a prison and we're in the midst of a difficulty. I like to refer to it as the glorious exchange. And we see it happening throughout scripture where believers are wrestling with really painful experiences that didn't meet their expectations and they have it out with God. They're, they're honest with God in a respectful way and God meets them in that place. The book of Habakkuk is that. This short book, one of the minor prophets, at the end of the Old Testament. And Habakkuk's looking around at culture and the nation of Israel and saying, God, how long are you going to allow this? How long are you going to put up with what's going on around here? When are you going to clean up this mess? Right? Ever felt that way? But God's response really surprised Habakkuk because God said, I'm going to send in a pagan nation to bring discipline and ultimately take you guys into captivity. And Habakkuk's like, wait a second, that's not what I thought you'd say. You know, like, I didn't really want you to clean it up that way, right? So Habakkuk very wisely, in Habakkuk chapter 2, says that he went and set himself up on a rampart. He, he got alone with God and he says, I'm going to wait here. And he waits with a pen and paper to hear what the Lord's going to speak. And God comes to him in that position of waiting. He pours out his doubts to the Lord. And here was God's answer to Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. God told Habakkuk, you've got to trust me. And that statement, the just shall live by faith, three books in the New Testament are written off of that truth. Romans, Ephesians, and the book of Hebrews all expound the just shall live by faith. But how did that happen? 
It happened with Habakkuk being honest with God. And the end of the book of Habakkuk, summary, paraphrases, Habakkuk's like, even if things are difficult, I'm going to still praise you. Even if there's no groceries in the grocery store, there's no cattle in the stall, all of these difficult things, if you take away all the blessing, I'm still going to praise you because I've found you to be praiseworthy. The Psalms are filled with that. If you listen to the Psalms, I've been enjoying the Psalms uh, through a Bible app being read out loud. And when you're hearing the Psalms be read, you're like, man, these guys are brutally honest. (laughs) They're just pouring out their heart before the Lord and, and their doubts. But in the midst of that, God is meeting them. So if you've got pain in your life, a prison, a circumstance in your life that is difficult for you, Would you have the courage, like John the Baptist, to share it with the Lord and bring it to the Lord? You know, where this has hit home for me on a couple of occasions, the first is when Amber and I went through miscarriages. We we went through two miscarriages. We had our older two kids, our older two daughters, and we thought, man, we've got this figured out. Like, the system just kind of works the way it's supposed to. And then all of a sudden, we had a miscarriage, and then we had another miscarriage, and then we didn't get pregnant for quite a while. And then God blessed us with Eileen and Wyatt, our third and fourth children. And, and I remember after the second miscarriage, it was coming up to our men's retreat. And the way that I used to do things in that season of ministry is I would go up and I'd teach the, men, the men's retreat on Friday night, leave first thing Saturday morning, drive down the mountain, and then teach here Saturday night and Sunday morning. And I'm struggling to get messages together because of the pain that I was going through and Amber was going through. And it was a humbling moment for me because here I couldn't even get a teaching together. And this is what God's called me to do. And it's what I do all of the time. And, and yet I couldn't focus. I, I couldn't get thoughts down on paper. I was, I was dry. I was broken. There, there just wasn't anything to share. And it was late at night, and I remember just getting on my knees in our bedroom, and you know, Amber was reading in bed, and just started to cry out to the Lord and have this moment of, of sharing my doubts and my questions and my frustrations with God. And, and I'd, I'd never really put it in these terms until that night, but I, I found myself praying, God, I'm disappointed in you. And I remember when I first came to know the Lord, I saw a book title that was entitled, When God Disappoints You, and I mocked it because being a new believer, I was like, how could you ever be disappointed with God? He died for your sins. Like, he's forgiving you of all of your sins. How could you ever be disappointed with God? But here I was later in life with the loss of these two children and the grief of that, of like, God, I'm disappointed. This, and I remember specifically, this is, did not turn out the way that I wanted it to. And it was really hard for me to verbalize that. There there was something inside of me that just didn't want to go there with the Lord and be that raw, be that open, be that, that honest. But it was in that that God met me and he began the process of starting to comfort me. Didn't, didn't just flip a switch that night, but it started to open up a framework in my relationship with the Lord where I could just have this honest dialogue with the Lord And then it came again full circle years later in the springtime of 2020 
when I got diagnosed with some difficult health news. And then for the next six months, uh, it was real dodgy with, with my health and a lot of challenges. And my body had always done what I'd wanted it to do. And again, I found myself late at night in my room, just totally wiped out, just, just like done and done struggling uh, with my health and this moment of frustration. And I didn't even really have the words to go there with the Lord this time. It was just, I was just laying there in, in my bed. And all I could do to really pray was to think of the Lord's prayer. You know, and I was thinking, our father. And all of a sudden, I couldn't get past that first phrase. And it was just this, whole, the Holy Spirit met me in that moment. And it was, God was revealing to me, Eric, I'm your dad. I'm your dad and I've got this and I'm going to be, I'm going to be faithful to you. But it was those moments of sharing those doubts uh, with, with the Lord, sharing those pains with the Lord. John the Baptist had the courage to go there and it's hard and it's difficult, but at least in my experience, the breakthrough, the comfort, the glorious exchange, it doesn't even begin to happen until we go there until we begin to let the Lord in. Imagine if John wouldn't have articulated this. If he wouldn't have shared this, he never would have experienced the comfort from the Lord. Third thing about doubt, and it's this, is that doubt changes our perspective. And this is just a reality of doubt. In this moment, while John the Baptist is in prison, he's starting to wonder if Jesus is the Messiah but prior to going into prison, he was absolutely certain. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He was pointing everyone to Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. But when we're in a dark prison, we start to doubt the things that we used to see clearly. And that's one of the things that doubt does. So it's really wise to hold on to the things that God has shown us in the light when it's dark. So if this is what we know about God before we enter into the trial that's based on the truth of Scripture, we hold on to that. And we hold on to it in our heart of hearts. And we say, I know that I'm in a place of darkness. I know that I'm in a, a prison. And this prison will have the tendency to try to change my perspective on who God is. And please hear me on this. This is the biggest danger of a prison. This is the biggest danger of the difficulty is not the outcome of the trial, but do I start to see God in the wrong light based upon the trial? I'm not seeing him accurately through scripture. I'm allowing that trial or that difficulty to taint my view of who God is. Does that make sense? And that was starting to happen to John the Baptist. Well, let's look at how Jesus responds. At that very hour, he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Last thing about doubt is doubt needs to be confronted. Doubt needs to be confronted. Yes, doubt is real and doubt is understandable and doubt is part of the human experience. And doubt needs to be shared and doubt changes our perspective. But it also needs to be confronted in time. 
And Jesus goes back to John the Baptist and says, tell him all of the things that are happening that he's not able to see because he's in the prison. All of these amazing healings, the blind, they can see, the deaf, they can hear, the demon-possessed are, are delivered, the dead are raised, and most importantly, the gospel is preached to the poor. And Jesus could have left it at that. He, he could have left the conversation at that, and it probably would have been enough for John the Baptist. But Jesus confronts John the Baptist's heart, and he says, Blessed are those who are not offended because of me. And that word offended actually means stumbled. Here Jesus is saying, I know, John, I'm doing things in your life that you don't understand. As the forerunner to the Messiah, you did not expect to be in prison and lose your life. But blessed are those who don't stumble because of me, because of my ways in your life. We are going to come to those places where we experience an unexpected trial, an unexpected outcome. Maybe you stood up for righteousness and you were expecting a certain outcome, but instead it resulted in a prison. And you're like, where are you, Lord? Where are you, Lord? Some trial that we didn't expect, and I think the words of Jesus would be the same to us that it was to John the Baptist Blessed are you who are not offended because of me. Eric, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And what causes us, what's our anchor and the cornerstone to our soul is what we celebrate in communion. I don't understand the trial. I don't understand the prison. I don't understand the difficulty. But God, I know you're good because you gave your son for me. And if you gave your son for me, how will you not with him freely give us all good things? So this doesn't look good from my perspective. It doesn't feel good from my perspective. But God, I know that you are good because you gave your son to die upon the cross for me. Your broken body and your shed blood. And so I'm choosing to not be offended or not stumble because of your ways in my life and I'm choosing to trust in you. Also, please hear this, is faith is a choice of the will not based on our emotions. Because when I'm in prison experiences and difficulties that have wiped me out in my life, my emotions are all over the place. And they deceive me, and my heart is, is deceptive. And I gotta step back, and I gotta look at the word, I've gotta look at the character of God, the love of Jesus Christ revealed the cross, and go, God, I'm choosing to trust you because of who I know you to be based on scripture. Who I know you to be on the truth of your son was sacrificed to me. I'm choosing to believe. I'm not letting my emotions control this. I'm not letting my emotions rule the day. Because some days our emotions will be like, oh, praise Jesus, trust God. He's the best thing ever, right? And then other days, our emotions are going, man, it feels like God abandoned me. And the enemy's quick to get on that bandwagon and try to get you going further in that downward spiral. So in God's timing, God will put his finger on it. And it may be tonight is doubt needs to be confronted. It needs to be wrestled through with, with us and Jesus where, where we're honest with him. We stop hiding and we share it with him. We see the answer that he would give us and we meet with the Lord on it 
and let Jesus move us from a place of doubt to a place of trust. It's always a process. It always involves up and downs. And it's not that we bat 100%. (laughs) It'd be great to like flip a switch tonight and go, man, I got this faith thing figured out. I'm never going to struggle with doubt. But there's going to be times where we're going to struggle with doubt. And as we do, I think we can learn a lot from John the Baptist's experience. First, take a deep breath. Okay, doubt's real. Real people that really love the Lord, really wrestled with doubt. Okay, I'm going to share those with the Lord. I'm going to have that framework with the Lord and go there with him. I'm going to realize doubt changes my perspective. What, what am I missing? And I'm going to invite the Lord to come in and confront my doubt, to remind me of his character, to remind me of his goodness. I was really wrestling in giving this message tonight because I kind of stole the thunder for chapter 7. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're going to be in chapter 7 in, in a few weeks. But I really felt like this is what the Lord had for us tonight in this particular service, is these doubts in prison. And first and foremost, I think God wants us to know that he knows you're hurting. God knows you're hurting. God knows that you're having doubts. He knows that you're in this prison that you really wish would go away. And he's near, he's present, and he wants you to go there. He wants you to go there with the Lord like John the Baptist did. He's big enough to handle our doubts. It's better to stop pretending and think, well, everything's great. Everything's hunky-dory and get alone with the Lord. And I would encourage you, even in communion, we've got time. Wait upon the Lord. Go there and wrestle and say, Lord, here's my doubts. And maybe you need to go for a walk tonight. Maybe like me, you're laying in bed and you can't get to sleep and you just start to cry out to God. But God is so good. He, he wants to come and he wants to, to meet us. And there's no formula here, this glorious exchange of us wrestling and, and God comforting. And it may be a season. It may be a long season of just continuing to, to wrestle. You know, in those two examples that I, I gave uh, tonight in wrestling with, with doubt and, and pain, it wasn't just like a flip got switched. It, it was months it was a year longer of just pain and, and wrestling and trusting and pain and wrestling and trusting and, and God comforting and meeting me in that, in that place. So it, it's not always a, a quick process. It's not a formula, but this is the beauty of it. Through those times, we know the Lord in a whole nother way, don't we? We, we, we come, come away from those seasons and we go, wow, Lord, I don't want to go through that again. Maybe I'm still going through it, but I've come to know you in a greater way. We have a father who's the father of mercy and the God of all comfort, and he wants to comfort you. From every indication that I can see in scripture is John the Baptist laid hold of what Jesus told him and said, I'm in, even though I'm in prison, I'm not backing down from this message on biblical sexuality, continued to preach it to Herod got beheaded, and he's like, so be it. Let, let's do it. He died declaring that Jesus was the Messiah. God met him in those doubts. And that's the amazing thing with our doubts is we don't have to stay there. God can meet us in those doubts and take us to a place of trust and build us up and give us strength to be able to walk in victory. 
How cool would it have been if God busted John the Baptist out of prison? He did it for a lot of guys in the book of Acts. But instead, God said, John, you're going to die for me in prison, and I'm going to show my faithfulness in your life through suffering. And John's like, okay, I'm in. Let's do this. Let's stand, let's pray, and allow the Lord to meet us in communion tonight. Father, we do, unfortunately, have times where we doubt. and We don't like that that's the case, but we're comforted by those in Scripture that had doubts as well and, and wrestled in their doubts. Lord, I pray for those that are in that season of trial, of prison, of difficulty, that they would feel a freedom to come to you and to share those questions with you in the same way that John the Baptist did. And that there would be a glorious exchange of our, our suffering with your comfort. And Lord, if you desire to do that in a moment, we welcome that. Lord, if it's something that you walk us through a process of time, we trust you in that as well. But God, we have found you to be faithful because of the gift of your son. And as we take communion, we don't want it to just be an empty tradition, but the reality that Jesus, your body was broken for us, your blood was shed for us so that we could be forgiven. And we choose to put our faith in you. We trust you for salvation and we choose to trust you and the difficulties in our life.